Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast about how comics and pop culture impact life and society and vice versa. Coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, I'm Kevin. And from Indiana, I am Sean. Before we get started with this episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And follow us on social media under the username at Caption Life on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Reddit. And you can also find out more information and past episodes at thecaptionedlife.com. Hey, Sean, you know that uh, we're drawing near close to the end of 2021, and uh, Mm -hmm. 2021 has been an odd year. You can say that. Not just that it's been a strange year with all the crazy stuff that's going on, it's it's also technically an odd-numbered year. And so here here in the United States, that means that there's no big uh, national election, and with no national election... There haven't been any good debates. Not that the the last few elections have yielded good debates at all. (laughs) True. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But not that as a society or country that we need more to disagree about, because it seems like that's that's kind of our (laughs) M.O. now. Uh, But a healthy debate, a friendly conversation is always good. And we're going to try to work some of that into uh, into the spirit, that spirit into today's episode. Uh, One of the great debate formats of all time, especially for for shows like the one that you and I have here is who's on your Mount Rushmore. Uh, And this is especially, especially popular with sports. Um, You know, the Mount Rushmore football, the Mount Rushmore baseball, so on. And people love to, uh, to debate it down to like the position or the team. Who's the Mount Rushmore quarterbacks. Who's the Mount Rushmore third baseman. Who's the Mount Rushmore of the Seattle Seahawks or the New York Yankees, which Mm -hmm. by the way, the Mount Rushmore of New York Yankees alone would be, a near impossible <laughs> task. Um, right. But in sports, if you have a lot of statistical data to back that stuff up, so you can make an argument for people and, and you can, and you can say, this is definitively why and other topics, it, it may be less cut and dry. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to personal preference. And, mm-hmm. and that's where we want to be. Like we're a, an opinion driven, um, I would say we're an opinion driven society, but we're definitely an opinion driven show. Um, and so we wanted to pick a topic to do Mount Rushmore on. And instead of picking one that was very specific, we was like, Hey, let's just throw out the broadest thing that we can think of. And uh, that way there's no wrong answers. So today we are going to talk about, uh, our Mount Rushmore of creative minds from the world of art and entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a pretty wide net to cast. Uh, but mm-hmm. we're talking about any field of art and entertainment. So writers, artists, filmmakers, songwriters, recording artists, they're all fair game. Right. Well, so speaking of, you know, the Mount Rushmore of creators in terms of art and entertainment, movies, music and things like that, I thought mm-hmm. we can start off this episode with just some tidbits of like things that maybe you might or might not know about these categories of entertainment, which is, again, movies, music, art, things like that. And so I have mm-hmm. a list that I thought I'd share with everybody here. So the first one I'm going to share is... Kevin, do you know what the first movie ever made is? I do not know the first movie ever made. Okay. So there's the first movie ever made, and then there's also the earliest surviving motion picture film. Okay. So we know what the first movie ever made, but we don't have like that film still, but there is the all like pretty much the oldest film that's Mm -hmm. in existence right now. So the first movie ever made is a movie called the horse in motion, which was made in 1878. And it's basically just what it sounds like. It's almost like a, uh, not like a palindrome, but just kind of almost like a spinning wheel of like a horse, you Mm -hmm. know, 
galloping. Mm-hmm. And they actually created this to answer the question, does a horse ever have all four legs off its ground? And okay. when they captured this, they found out that, yes, indeed, <laughs> at some point, the horse has all four legs off the ground. They used to um, have something a little bit like this at the Children's Museum I would go to as a kid. And it was like mm-hmm. this giant wheel that spun around and was an, a horse animation that, that went through it. That checks out, Sean. I'm, I'm going to yeah. say I'm say that's probably true based on your research. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then the earliest surviving motion film that we have is called Round Hay Garden Scene, which was made in 1888. So 10 years later than the first film ever made. And it's uh, was created by a French inventor named uh, Louis Le Prince. And it's only 2.11 seconds long. And it's really like four. It's a movie of four people walking around a garden. Only okay. like less than three seconds. Right. So. Pretty much the first TikTok ever made. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sweet vine, bro. It is, yeah. Uh, the first cartoon ever made is a cartoon called Phantasmagory in 1908 by French artist Emile Cole. Uh, what about the first comic? Do you know what the first comic is? Oh, that's a good question. I know that like Superman um, was an early, like was really like the first one of the very first comics that came out and was like published as a, as a, like a book, but I wouldn't, I don't know about, uh, you, you'd have to enlighten me. Yeah. Yeah. So Superman is the first superhero comic created, okay. but the first comic ever is called the adventures of Mr. Obadiah Oldbuck, And it was actually published in 1837 by oh, wow. a Swiss artist named, uh, Rodolf Topfer. And he's, um, uh, Geneva, Switzerland, right? So, yeah. So it's interesting that we have like some of these first that, um, you know, I, I think what would surprise a lot of people is that these first things, um, are not created by American inventors. Cause I mm-hmm. think we have, you know, this notion that, you know, a lot of things were created in America, which is definitely true. But these genres of these arts, you know, were created by people that were, uh, not from, uh, America. Right. Uh, the first song ever recorded again was, um, created by an inventor named uh, Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville in Paris. And it's a song called um, Au Clair de la Lune, mm-hmm. recorded it in 1860. Pretty crazy, right? So that's like a, like a, like a recording, like on a, a record or something like that. It's some sort of recording. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is that I believe it's the first song ever recorded, mm-hmm. but it's not the first song to ever be like played back. So when they did this, they weren't thinking about capturing it so someone could listen to it later. They just wanted to capture audio, just capture sound. But there's no way for them to play back what they captured, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So um, what about the first mobile phone call made? Not the first phone call ever, but mobile phone call. Oh, isn't this famous? Like, isn't this like some guy like made a mobile phone call to like... Like the cop to to the competition or something. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was made in 1973 by inventor Martin Cooper, who worked uh, for Motorola. Okay. Right? He was an executive and researcher there, and he called Doctor Engel of Bell Labs, which was his rival, and he mm-hmm. basically told him, "I'm calling you <laughs> from the cell phone or mobile phone that I just created." Uh, and back then, those mobile phones only had a 30 minute talk time, and it took 10 hours to charge. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so really that's insane. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we're getting to stuff I think you'll probably be uh, a little bit more familiar with. The movie with the highest grossings or highest earning. Of all time? Of all time. I guess technically that would be Avatar. It is Avatar. Okay. Yep. Over $2.84 billion. Yes. And a, and a technological, a big leap technologically um, that inspired a lot of other other films. So mm-hmm. it's yep. definitely a water. It's definitely a water watermark for creativity in, in, in the field of filmmaking. Right. And, I, and I'll tell you, James Cameron didn't end up on my list, but he was he was like one of the, you know, first first five out or whatever, like the the high honorable mentions, because he has he has the impact that he's had with stuff like that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's been on a lot of uh, really you know high end uh, movies. So. Yeah. Things things that things that he did essentially other people emulated. Right. Or or he made something so awesome that it just pushed everything forward a notch. Yeah, yeah. Well, like Terminator Two, like he was responsible for Terminator Two, and that was actually mm-hmm. the most successful sequel ever created. And it was mm-hmm. also the the most costly, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, at the time, I, I think he holds the record for like making expensive movies, but then making also movies that make a lot of money. Right. Because yep, Titanic exactly. was the same thing, mm-hmm. most expensive movie ever made, and up until right. that point the most profitable movie ever. Right. Yep. So, yeah. And the, in the second movie of all time, um, at, you know, today is Avengers Endgame, which had mm-hmm. earned a $2.79 billion. Mm-hmm. So, um, how about highest earning animated movie? And this might surprise you of all time of all time, man, <laughs> is it a frozen film? No, it's close though. Frozen's close. Is it a, is it Finding Nemo or Finding Dory? It is Incredibles two. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, it surprised me because I, I guess I didn't think of it as being, you know, that profitable. But I guess it was. It earned six hundred and eight and a half million dollars. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. For uh, for for a while there, they were just leapfrogging each other. Like every time that uh, a Disney movie or a Pixar movie came out, it was just one upping. The others. Right. So that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> exactly. That doesn't surprise yeah. me. Um, okay. So this next part is about music. Um, and I have to preface this by saying that there's a couple of categories when we talk about um, highest grossing music. Okay. Because there's physical copies sold, which you think about records and CDs. And then there's also digital copies. And so okay. what I'm going to say is the music album that sold the most like physical copies ever. Michael Jackson's Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yes, over sixty-seven million copies sold. So. Yeah, that was a, that was a groundbreaker. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it still is too. Like no other, you know, artist has got, gotten close to that. I think the closest one, the second place, was I think ACDC's Back in Black, but I think it was still short by ten million copies. Um, and to be honest, I don't know if if we're going to see something, if we're going to see anything like that because of the digital age that we're in. You know, so I'll give you a uh, something that can compare to a, a few years ago when the song Despacito um, mm-hmm. came out. It transcended like pop culture because it was an extremely catchy song, and mm-hmm. um, like YouTube, it, I think it helped YouTube reach its pinnacle because it was one of the first videos to get over a billion views, and mm-hmm. um, I still think it holds a record for most views on on YouTube. So right. like 
a lot of that, and, I, and I'll tie this back to um, to Thriller because I know a little bit about it. Um, a lot of it, a lot of like how we remember things is the is the media that it was attached to. Thriller came out in 1982, the year I was born, and mm-hmm. MTV was in its infancy. And right. thrill, um, John John Landis um, produced the video, the, the music video, the short film that's like eight minute long short film um, mm-hmm. for Michael Jackson's Thriller, and they would air it in its entirety as a music video on MTV, and it was hugely popular. Um, mm-hmm. And it made MTV what it was until MTV became what it is now, which is garbage. Uh, they don't right. play they don't play music on it anymore. But you could you could almost say that like like as a society we have Michael Jackson to blame for for MTV surviving to the point where it could become what it has become (laughs) because of course like now it's terrible and um, if it had died if Michael Jackson never made Thriller maybe it died you know like you know that people debate about going back in time and killing Hitler as an infant (laughs) if you went back in time and stopped Thriller from being made MTV would have never survived. Yeah, true. But I think, you know, I think something would have taken its place, though. I mean, it may not be music television, but I think at some point there would be some sort of television cable show that would have, you know, focused on music videos. Because I think that's what actually helped propagate music to even more than where it's at now is because now music, I mean, especially now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with celebrities and everything, it's not just, you know, being good in the craft, but you also have to have all this presence. I think that's just where it was going is everybody was, you know, who are musicians or artists, you know, really good as musicians. But then the next level was creating these very well-crafted videos that were cinematic. And I think mm-hmm. that's just, you know, where it was heading and music and MTV just, you know, got to that point. Music videos were commercial for the the music, like the album. And that's back, right. like during its heyday, the, the height of the music video was when people made all of their money on um, on album sales. Right. Like physical right. album sales. And so those things go hand in hand with one another. Right. Yeah. All right. And, and of course, we're a podcast about comics, so we can't leave this out. But the most expensive comic book ever sold. It's got to be a copy of of um, Superman number one. But it maybe, was for like five months. Uh, so recently, I know that like a is it is it a Spider Man like the Amazing Fantasy like number one sold here number recently? fifteen number fifteen yeah yeah, yeah nineteen sixty two Amazing Fantasy number fifteen mm-hmm. is the most expensive for three point six million dollars that was just sold like September this year okay so this yeah. is a recent record yeah but it was just like what you said the second which is now the second most expensive comic book was Action Comics nineteen thirty eight which was the first appearance of Superman which was sold for three point two five million dollars um, but that was like earlier this year as well too. So Superman held that title for about like five or six months or something like that. And then Spider-Man took that title. (laughs) So, yeah. And I wonder how much of that has to do with their status in pop culture today, because Superman has kind of taken a back seat because Mm -hmm. the DC extended universe kind of stinks and, and Spider-Man is a much more hot commodity. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something still to be said about the fact that Superman, um, was sold for $3.25 million this year, even though, you know, that's what they're doing with DCE, right? Because Superman, you know, regardless of what DC has been doing with their movie uh, mm-hmm. um, presence right now, 
Superman is still considered as like the superhero of all comics, right? Because mm-hmm. he's pretty much, you know, nearly perfect in every aspect. Uh, it's the thing that people, you know, think about when they think about superhero comics. He is the first superhero in modern day comics that we talk about. And so I think it's still, even to that regard, I, I think, you know, there's something to be said, the fact that it was the highest until Spider-Man came around. And again, this is just how much, you know, it ever sold, you know, and that that can be something uh, there is no science behind it. It's just uh, you know a number of factors that go into it, and it just happens to be. I don't want to say it's arbitrary, but it just happens to be that that's what it sold for. You know, there could be a bunch of factors behind the reason why that comic. But yeah, this is the first one that um, you know Spider Man appeared in. Um, so obviously it has that. And when it first released in 1962, it was only sold for like 12 cents, or right. it was only sold for 12 cents, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a big invest. That's a big return on your investment. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So and those are my tidbits of the entertainment industry. (laughs) So let's get into who our our Mount Rushmore of creative uh, people are. And and I'll even say I'll even throw out the word visionary for the people who I was looking for on my list is I'll I'll go through like what my criteria was is I was Mm -hmm. looking for somebody who had an impact with not just what they were, not with just what they did, but how it affected others and mm-hmm. maybe people who had success in their specific field, um, as well as people who transcended their film field and worked in others. And then the third kind of thing I was looking for were people who were innovators and who, who had done things that hadn't been done before. Um, and so that's where, that's where I was going, um, with mine. Um, I, I, speaking of comics, I, I really, really wanted to put some, some comics people on mine and ultimately I didn't. Um, and I think part of that is, is because I'm such a, a film person that while I respect visionaries like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, as much as I respect like Shakespeare and J.R.R. Tolkien, like these are the people that created the playground that like filmmakers play in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, this is, that's my medium. That's my favorite thing is the, is the visual medium of, of film and television. And so mm-hmm. mine kind of went more uh, that direction. Right. Right. So uh, I just picked people that I thought were awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, no, all I'm, these people are I, awesome. So. Right. Yeah. No, um, my criteria was just basically people that had made an impact on the field that they're in on some level that I personally thought were meaningful to me um, or at least meaningful in their field. And I tried to find um, try to identify people that wasn't just in their field, but made an impact broadly as well, too. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of, you know, transcended um, what they're known for in that particular area, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that's, you know, how I thought about going to um, going about picking my top four of the Mount Mushmore of creators. Um, but I did want to share that we actually posted on social media the same question for our listeners. And we did have somebody who shared um, who one of their favorite creators or entertainers are. And this comes from PJ Campbell, who uh, his Instagram account is soups99. And he said that Donnie Cates at Marvel is his favorite. Um, he thinks his current Thor 
uh, story is awesome and that his entire Venom series was great as well. So thanks, PJ, for sharing that with us. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and Donny Cage will definitely be an honorable mention for this episode. So. Yeah, and I, I honestly, we could do a Mount Rushmore of our favorite comic creators and I right. would have no easier time whittling it down to four as I did like this pretty broad one um, right. because I love so many of those guys. And I'll even throw a shout out for for like somebody like Jim Lee who has mm-hmm. been a big influence for me because of when he was coming up, when I fell in love with comics. And then I think if you look at comics today, a lot of what we recognize as traditional comic art is, mm-hmm. is from a people who, who fell in love with comic art because they looked at his stuff. And um, I think a lot of his contemporaries kind of like kept the same style over mm-hmm. the years. And he's like literally just gotten better and better in 30 years. And so, um, right. If I were, if we were going to do that, I like he would be, he would be on there for sure, for me. Right. Um, right. But I, I'll go ahead and jump in my list. Uh, I want to. I have four people's names, and I'm gonna. I one of those is is a is a very legendary lady. So I'm gonna go ladies first. Okay. Um, and the first person on my Mount Mushmore of uh creative genius slash innovators is the one and only Lucille Ball. Nice. Okay. Um, so Lucille Ball was a, was a comedic genius and Mm -hmm. she, um, she got famous in the very early days of television. Like in 1951, when I love Lucy started every show that was on traditional broadcast television was recorded live in New York and broadcast live out. Like by the time Saturday Night Live came out in 1975, like they were no longer shooting live. That's why Saturday Night Live was like such a novel and, and, and cool idea at the time was, but, but you couldn't do a sitcom like I love Lucy, um, live a lot of the mm-hmm. time, because like a lot of these shows were variety shows and things like that. Right. Um, so they offered this show to, to Lucille Ball and she didn't want to move to New York. Her and her husband wanted to stay in LA and in LA is where they made movies and you shot movies on 35 millimeter film. And right. The studio said, we're not, we're not going to pay for that. So they created their own production company, Desilu Productions. They right. shot the, shot the show on 35 millimeter film. And then, mm-hmm. um, it, they ate the cost. They, they paid for the filming, but they also kept the rights to the show. Right. So this created modern television as we know it, just right. in the way, in the way that, um, shows were filmed live in front of a studio audience. I mean, how many of us grew up? hearing that right um shooting it with multiple cameras so that you could you could do it one time Mm -hmm. and then um they could they could ship the print to be broadcast in new york city but then they the 35 millimeter print was always around and and they gave birth to the rerun right um so not only was all of this stuff done like in the seven eight years that i love lucy was on when she when they when they left that show and she and Desi got divorced, she bought out his share of the production company and then would go on to produce things like the Andy Griffith show, mm-hmm. uh, Mission Impossible, and really what has created modern science fiction as we know it in Star Trek. Right. So she's right. like the fairy godmother of of modern science fiction, and she was the first like female to or first woman to run her own studio. And like, there's just, the list goes on and on and on. She's mm-hmm. an amazing creative person. 
Um, and she was a legend before it probably that wasn't even respected in her time. Right. Yeah. Like right. we didn't, we didn't quite, that people didn't quite understand how important she was during her time. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause she had during, during her time, she had to fight a lot for that, especially not only because she's female, but uh, Desi was Cuban American mm-hmm. and there is, you know, still some heavy prejudice around uh, yeah, they didn't Cuban think, Americans. They didn't think that the American public would buy into the show because they didn't think they would accept her being married to a Cuban. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, she, she was a, she was a woman and she was married to a minority, like in the, in the, mm-hmm. like one of the toughest stretches to, to do that. and, and I know that you have you have a woman on your list, but it, I think it, it says a lot that like when you think about like making a list like this, like how many of how how much of it we're going to gravitate towards men because mm-hmm. the system, honestly, the system has held women back for so long that when right. we're talking about like long term, important, creative legacies, mm-hmm. women just haven't either had the exposure or they haven't had the opportunity to create like that. Right. And, that's why we need to that's why we need to be pushing these opportunities because I feel like if we did this list in 20 years you'd have women like um Patty Jenkins and Catherine Bigelow and like all these um even like people like Kaylee Cuoco who's on the Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. and now is a is a major producer and stuff in in her own right like in tw- another 20 30 years like this list is going to be a lot different right so exactly yep I agree um, so the first person on my list, and there's no particular order, just, you know, how I wrote it down when I was thinking through this and everything is, um, Will Smith, who, as many of us know, um, got his first break as a rapper back in the late eighties, early nineties. And he was known as Fresh Prince and his, uh, partner, uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Right. And from there, he ended up being on a television show that was about his life in a sense, but worked it out with, um, I think NBC was the studio company that he, mm. uh, got the show with, um, and created Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which is now, you know, one of the, uh, is the pinnacle or one of the pinnacle shows of the early 90s mm-hmm. growing up for a lot of us. And oh, yeah. that was that was one of his first gigs as an actor as well, too. He actually was in a couple movies during his time there, but that's where he got his first breakout role was uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he did a phenomenal job. I remember watching, you know, the show growing up. And I remember that was probably the, the first show and maybe the only show when I was uh, in my teenage years where watching him he was just really so good at mm-hmm. acting that it really moved you i remember there's a couple episodes of fresh prince of bel-air that was really really touching and emotional and, and raw and powerful that um i think i even teared up a little bit and i didn't really tear up uh you know at a lot of movies or a mm-hmm. lot of shows at that age so um and now he's gone on to be one of the you know one of the greatest actors of our time. I know mm-hmm. he's having a movie come out called King Richard that's about him mm-hmm. playing the role of uh, Venus and Serena Williams' father and and them growing up. Uh, he's also a co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, the NBA basketball team. He's helped produce a lot of movies, helped a lot of people get their start. Um, and so he's actually just been around a lot of different fields and a lot of um, areas that he's just you know pretty much everywhere now. He so. has a really great looking um, really cool looking documentary series coming out on disney plus soon too mm-hmm. uh, and that looks interesting you know how like in the like in the 
early nineties, they had like, um, like superhero trading cards. And like on the back of these superhero trading cards, they would, they would rate each superhero with like different attributes, like strength and speed and Mm -hmm. things like that. Will Smith, if, if you had his card charisma, like on a scale of one to 10 would be like an 11. Right. Because like he's one of the most charming and charismatic people. He's just widely popular and loved. Like it, you'd you'd have a hard time finding somebody who had a bad opinion about him. Right, right. And yep. he's not somebody that I even considered for my list, but absolutely like fits the bill. Right. I'm gonna go to my number two, and mm-hmm. uh, my number two was Elton John. Oh, nice. That's a good one. I wanted to make sure that I picked somebody for my list from the music industry and Elton John has a 50 year career of, of making popular music and it inspired a lot of the people who I like to listen to because I like singer songwriters. I like people who play the piano. Um, mm-hmm. and the music that he made has, has always been really, really great. But then when he started to branch out and do films like, um, The Lion King and Road to El Dorado, those things have his music through film has also stood the test of time. And then if you look at some of the the Broadway musicals that he's written for have really gone on to um, have great success, like specifically mm-hmm. the Lion King is the highest grossing musical of all time. It's made like over $6 billion worldwide since it opened in the, in the late nineties. Right. So, so all of that stuff. And then if you've ever seen Kingsman two, he absolutely steals the show and he's like super hilarious playing um, a, a version of himself. Um, mm. And then to top all of that stuff off, I mean, he's a legend when it comes to um, humanitarian efforts through his AIDS foundation. And then mm-hmm. he, as, as being a, a pioneer in the, the L, I don't want to say this wrong, the LGBT plus, com- plus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, community. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was one of the first people to like first famous people to come out. And he wasn't you know, it was not widely accepted at, at first, but um, he's one of the people that that not that it needed to be normalized, but it, he helped it to become more normalized and accepted for the people that couldn't accept. It. Right. You know, going back to his impact on Lion King, what's really interesting, and I think you probably know this as well, too, is that so he wrote a lot, if not all the music for that movie. Mm-hmm. But I guess Disney was actually considering not having the song Can You Feel the Love Tonight in there. And Elton John, I guess, got on the phone and told him, you know, all these reasons why they need to have it in there. Mm-hmm. And so he convinced him to keep it in there. And end up being, you know, such a huge hit that Mm -hmm. I think it won either an Oscar or a what's the music, the Grammys, either Oscar or Grammy. It won won an award for that, basically. The only thing that he doesn't have in terms of ego, the EGOT, uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, is he does not have an Emmy. So, right. Okay, so it's not an Emmy then. (laughs) Yeah, well, but but I mean, but he has he has Oscar awards for the music that he wrote for movies. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I guess Emmys is more for television shows. So, yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he could film he could film one of his farewell concerts and they could put it on HBO and he could win an Emmy that way. And then, boom, he's got it. So. Right. Yeah. I don't think Elton John needs that to validate himself um, to anybody, <laughs> though. As a matter of fact, yeah. I saw an interview with him really recently where he spent the last year and a half, you know, in quarantine and, you know, under a lot of restrictions 
So he ended up um, playing piano as a studio musician on a lot of other people's albums. So he's okay. got this long, long list of um, other people that he played along with. And he's not like singing or anything. He's just playing piano for him because he, he needed something to do. And, and to hear him talk about people like he was on Howard Stern um, mm-hmm. talking about um, how, how important Metallica was. He's just so nice and so flattering. Like, mm-hmm. like, I mean, he's rock royalty and right. he, he, but he recognizes other, other people as like, you've, you've done something important to make a con- contribution. So he's right. a super cool dude and a legend to me. Right. Right. Uh, the second person I had on my list is Dolly Parton, which many people will know her from her, you know, music talent. Um, she's had, I think, at least four decades, if not more, mm-hmm. of a musician career and mm-hmm. hit songs and things like that. Went from country to pop. Has been, um, you know, has been in movies as an actress and mm-hmm. even helped, you know, produce them. Uh, she ended up. She, she's from Tennessee, which mm-hmm. my dad's family's from Tennessee, so I've always had that connection as well. And she's done a lot for her home state, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool because you know when people talk about her, that's one of the things that they know her about uh, or know of her is that she gives back a lot to her, you know, roots and to her community. Um, she ended up buying a amusement park, which I can't remember what the original name of it is, uh, was then, but it's now called Dollywood, which is, you know, it's no universal studios or Disney, but it's, it's a really fun place and it's really neat to go to. And, you know, just that area alone is just really cool. Um, and so she's just have done a, you know, fantastic job with her career and also impacting her community. And, as we know, with everything that's happened um, in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic and epidemic and everything, we actually found out that she was a major donor uh, to Vanderbilt, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. to help uh, do research to find um, a vaccine for uh, COVID-19. So, I mean, so she just has, you know, as a entertainment uh, as an entertainer she's been fantastic but you know just even as somebody that just gives back to her you know home sink and community you know i think that's what makes her just a fantastic person overall is that mm-hmm. she goes well beyond just what she's known as in the entertainment industry and is just an awesome human being overall she, so she is the patron saint of tennessee and she <laughs> she is an american treasure Right. And and I'll I'll go. I love Dolly Parton as a musician, as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she she is another person that has like so much natural charisma. It's hard to find anybody that has anything negative to say about her. Right. But one hundred percent true, real talk. This is Kevin being one hundred percent honest. Dolly mm-hmm. Parton from like nineteen seventy seven through nineteen eighty two. Mm-hmm. To me, was the most beautiful woman that has ever lived on the planet Earth. Like she, I'm sure a lot of people think that she too. Yeah. was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I you can there are lots of pictures from her. Like like this is like the, around the time that she started getting into the, um, like when she was doing her solo career and she was getting into the movie industry. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's late seventies and she has like the the big hair and whatever. But she was absolutely. Um, she was absolutely beautiful and she has the talent to match it. One of the things I love most ab- about her is her, her philanthropic efforts. Like you mentioned, um, and the, what she does for other people. Dolly Parton mm-hmm. is a, is a gazillionaire. Like, you know, she has hundreds of millions of dollars. She bought an amusement park. 
like you said. Right. Like, I mean, that's not cheap. Um, right. But the thing that she's made the most money off of in her career is the song I Will Always Love You, which right. she has the second most popular recording of because she wrote that song in the late 70s or early 80s. But then when Whitney Houston recorded it for um, The Bodyguard in 1992, it became one of the biggest songs of of all time. Right. And she is. This happened just the other day that um, Little Nas X did a redo of Jolene. And she was mm-hmm. like very flattering with it. Like, you know, it sounds great. I, I hope you have a lot of success with it. Her ego isn't threatened by somebody else doing her song and doing it better than than she did. Because in right. her eyes, hey, we all make money if it's successful. Right, right. So, yeah, she's she's amazing. She is an amazing person, uh, but mm-hmm. also definitely belongs way up there on the, the Mount Rushmore creativity. Right. Okay, third person on my list is a film director. And I, okay. this is hard for me to do, okay? Because there are amazing filmmakers out there. Um, mm-hmm. Some people that, that like, I was like, okay, these are the, my five favorite filmmakers, and I have to pick one of them to go on this list. I didn't pick Steven Spielberg. I didn't pick okay. Quentin Tarantino. I didn't pick um, Peter Jackson, although in terms of, like, world building and the things that they've created are amazing. Mm-hmm. My favorite, number three on my list, is John Favreau. Nice. So, um, <laughs> he started out as an actor and then, right. um, really learned, um, he's underrated funny. Like just, he plays the straight man very well and he's super funny. Like in those, a lot of those roles of, that he's been in are supporting. He's great mm-hmm. as Happy Hogan, especially in the, um, the Spider-Man playing like the father figure to Spider-Man in the last two, um, Spider-Man films. Right. Um, but I mean, he, he came up as an actor, as a mm-hmm. filmmaker on a smaller scale, and then now just makes just these huge, huge impacts with the stuff that he's doing because number one, he jump started the MCU. Like, right. you can say now that Kevin Feige is probably the, you know, he's the architect, he's the watcher of, of the, of the MCU, but mm-hmm. John Favreau was there in the beginning and he made the right. first two. He made the first two um, MCU films in Iron Man and Iron Man 2. He took a chance on Robert Downey Jr., which people thought he was crazy with. And mm-hmm. it, that's a, he created a legend in his own right. And right. Um, where he went from there was just pioneered different technologies that are um, changing the way films are made, whether or not it's the CG animals from The Jungle Book or The Lion mm-hmm. King remake. Um, to the way they use digital backgrounds in the Mandalorian, um, where they would create, you know, they would, instead of shooting on a green screen, they would shoot in front of a, a projector and they would put the scene, the background in digitally. This, these things are amazing. Mm-hmm. But during all of this time, he's also stayed very down to earth. And one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Chef. Um, that okay. he, that he wrote and directed a few years ago. It's a very uh-huh. low, small scale film about a down and out chef who starts a food truck and it's a father son movie. And because like, you know, trying to connect with my own son is a big part of my existence now. Like we love mm-hmm. that movie together. And then, mm-hmm. um, he created a show on Netflix called The Chef Show, which is like a hybrid 
cooking an interview show with, with, with celebrity chefs and other famous people and whatnot. But it's just, he's passionate about the things that he does. He does them really, really well. And mm-hmm. you can't put him in just one box. Like he, he's, he does so many things great. He's the kind of creative person I exp- inspire to, uh, aspire to be. <laughs> right. Right. So. Yeah. You know, he, uh, his first Marvel movie was actually Daredevil back in 2003. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot about that. Yeah. He was uh, Foggy Nelson. And what got him to be able to direct Iron Man was actually his success as the director for the movie Elf. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, not a lot of people know that, but I mean, he directed Elf and a lot of people were just really impressed. That's what got him on the radar mm-hmm. to be like a really popular director in Hollywood. So, yeah. And I and his movie, um, it's called Zathura and it's kind of I think it's in the um, the Jumanji universe. Um, but he directed okay. a movie called Zathura uh, mm-hmm. years ago um, that is also a really good family film. It's 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 not well known as some of his other works, but it's also like I don't know that he's ever made a, a sucky movie. Right. So. Right. Um, third person on my list is legendary martial artist actor Bruce Lee. Okay. That's kind of out of <laughs> left field, but like I'm interested to to hear like you the justification. Yeah, well, I mean, gosh, if you think about, you know, the impact that he's had. So he mm-hmm. died really young at the age of 32, you know, okay, it was kind yeah, of Definitely. You know, it was just kind of out of nowhere. I I think um you know, the more that they talked about you know, what actually caused his death was still a little bit of a mystery. Um, but when you look at the kind of impact he's had in his short life, um, it's really amazing. Like, first of all, if you ever watch any of his movies or just, you know, watch any videos on YouTube or any film of his, um, you know, he's in physical peak shape that he's just known to be the strongest man alive and probably, you know, one of the strongest people ever. And he was really well known as a martial artist that he can do like the two inch punch where you can literally put two fingers on your chest like this. And then, you know, from from that position, punching in the chest and people say it is like the hardest hit that they've ever experienced in life just from two inches. So that tells you something about his physical stamina. And he actually broke into Hollywood as an actor and, and helped made a bunch of films. And and a lot of them end up, you know, going also being in Hong Kong as well too, but has made a major impact on Hollywood film that martial arts as a movie genre was really created because of him and got popularized because of Mm -hmm. him. And the TV show Kung Fu that came out in the seventies was actually a show that he created and that he was supposed to star in. But because of, you know, the times back then they thought that having an Asian, um, you know, lead person as the uh, showrunner wouldn't work. And so that's why they actually hired uh, David Carradine who looked less Asian, but Mm -hmm. uh, the impact he's had on, you know, the, stereotype of Asian males and, you know, being uh, emasculated and everything kind of got thrown out the window when he came onto the scene and just showed, mm-hmm. you know, how he can pretty much take on anybody and, you know, created his own uh, fighting style, which I think was called uh, Jeet Kune Do. And um, a lot of what we have today has really been inspired by him. So if you look at Mortal Kombat, right, Liu Kang was modeled off of mm-hmm. him. When you look at Shang-Chi, which is a Marvel comic that we have a movie come out, that's also based mm-hmm. on Bruce Lee. So he's actually somebody 
somebody that has just permeated throughout all of history as a martial artist actor and has just um, one of the people that people always think about in terms of who's one of the greatest fighters in the world. He's indebitably going to be the person brought up just like how people think of Michael Jordan as the you know best basketball player mm-hmm. in the world and Babe Ruth being the best baseball player in the world. Everyone's going to always think about Bruce Lee being one of the most you know strong one of the strongest people in the world too. Yeah. I've yeah. I've heard on multiple occasions people say that like if UFC had been around when Bruce Lee was around he would have been he would have been un, unbeatable so like I I don't mm-hmm. doubt that and and he has had a huge impact on um on entertainment like because um kung fu movies uh, martial arts movies those kinds of things have been around since mm-hmm. the early 70s now for 50 years um because of because of he made them popular Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that we think of, you know, now, or at least for us growing up, were people that were inspired or even worked with Bruce Lee. So like Chuck mm-hmm. Norris is somebody that was, you know, part of our culture growing up. Jackie Chan, you mm-hmm. know, he was a student of Bruce Lee's as well, too, you know. So he's inspired a lot of people who are still in the industry mm-hmm. um, that are major stars as well, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great yeah. pick, Sean. I mean, your <laughs> list was you've got some great people on your list. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that the last person on our list is going to be the same person. Probably. Um, cause we're, cause we're best friends and brothers from another mother. So yeah. it makes sense. <laughs> um, listen, I, I tried to think about doing a list that, that didn't include this person on it. But the mm-hmm. more that I thought about it, the more I was like, there's no list without this person. Right. Okay. Um, I kind of I was thinking like we would do this together and we would we would we should talk about it ahead of time and omit this person the way that the New York Times omits like the Bible and the dictionary like <laughs> they would just be number one every year. So they don't they don't count them. Right. Um, right. And like there was like this guy and then everybody else. Right. So um, mm-hmm. that person for me is Walt Disney. Yep, same here. <laughs> okay. So our and, Mount and Rush- we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I think no. we both knew, yeah. but we didn't actually confirm this ahead of time. So, so yeah. the ca- the caption life Mount Rushmore has seven people on it <laughs> because um, we shared we shared one entry. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but so Walt Disney is the, uh, to me is the ultimate innovator in terms of like filmmaking during his time. Like, right. He he made feature link. Anim- he made a feature length animated cartoon when nobody had ever attempted that. Uh, and it was one of the most expensive things ever undertaken in Hollywood at the time, but it was also one of the most lucrative and right. it came out and uh, it was 1937. Then Snow White came out, if I'm not mistaken. I believe um, so. Yes. And if you look even just two years later with what people were attempting to do with um, filmmaking, um, mm-hmm. with like the, um, Dorothy, what's it? the Lizard of Oz, like, right. like things like he gave birth to the event motion picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gave birth to the animated motion picture. And then he took mm-hmm. all of this stuff. We, you know, I talked about those other directors in, in world building. Right. Um, he, he built not only this, this world, this, this Disney universe where like all of these, all they have so many legendary characters and, and stories. And, you know, some of that stuff is fairy tales from the public domain that they put their spin on. And like, mm-hmm. when you think like Cinderella um, and the little mermaid, like those are stories that have been around for hundreds of years, but 
but the Walt Disney version is the definitive version at this point. Right. Um, so not only did he build worlds in our imaginations, he mm-hmm. took that imagination and built a physical place for us right. to go, like become a kid again in, in Disney world and Disney right. land and then later Disney world. Right. Um, and I don't know. It's, I'll let you jump in and, and talk about why, why you love them. Uh, Cause I could go on and on and on. Yeah. No, I mean, for the same reasons is, you know, I think what's really inspiring about him is that, you know, he grew up in the Midwest. Right. Um, but, you know, talking about Snow White and, and Disneyland and Disney World, um, those are the two things I actually found really fascinating, because when you look at the history of Walt Disney and what those two events in the person and company of Walt Disney meant, at the time, I mean, looking back at it, everybody's like, yeah, you know, it makes sense, like, why it was so popular and why it was, you know, such a success. But really, he had to take out a substantial loan to do Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And it was one of those things where if the movie ended up failing and not doing well, he would have not had a company at all. And he would have went bankrupt and probably, you know, wouldn't be such a huge icon in American cinematic history, you know? And so um, I think that's what's fascinating is that he believed in it so much that he was willing to just put everything in and say, you know, let's go big or let's go home type of mentality. And the same thing with Disneyland, like the, a lot of people, even though at that point, Disney was a major name in the industry. He had a hard time getting people to finance this idea of creating a theme park that was based around like his characters and things like that, that people did not believe mm-hmm. in that. And so that's why he ended up cutting a deal with um, a couple of, of major names, but one of them being ABC, where he said that. Um, you know, they would help ABC out as long as they gave him a spot, I think, like every Saturday evening mm-hmm. for him to go on the show or go on the station and talk about his plans for Disneyland. Right. The, prog- and same the progress thing. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the same thing is like a lot of people, you know, it, it was just he was putting so much into it that it, if it didn't succeed, it would be a substantial hit to the company and end up being one of the biggest successes of the company. You know, so I think those two things that ends up being, you know, the pinnacle of the company and his uh, legacy mm-hmm. were also the biggest risk that he took that completely changed the game. It could have gone one way or the other, basically. Yeah. And and those things became the cornerstone of what the Disney company is because it's a film mm-hmm. studio um, right. and it's uh, an amusement park. Like right. those are the and those are the two. It's it's Disney Entertainment and it's Disney Parks and mm-hmm. Those two branches of the of the company are the are the most um, the most lucrative and mm-hmm. and they were his biggest they were his biggest risks. And he was he was 10, 15, 20 years ahead of his time, like right. with all of these things, like he was an innovator. He was like the ultimate like like hard driven person, probably to the point like if you look and you were talking about like some of the places where he was um deficient in his personality i mean he he could be an an ass when it came to like dealing with people because he had high standards but like there i'm i'm so interested and i've I've watched nearly everything that you can watch on disney plus about him and the people that he surrounded himself with because Mm -hmm. i i kind of feel like a kinship to those people that worked for him like Mm -hmm. because like i i don't see myself as a walt disney type um like 
innovator, but I'm drawn to those type of people. And like, right. I'd, I'd love to work on a project like this. There's so many great people that work for him either as either animators or, uh, imagineers and ride designers. And, mm-hmm. and they, they, they loved him. Like the people that they interviewed, like wept openly about his, his passing, you know, 50 right. years after it happened. And, right. um, he was just like the, I mean, you could make a list of like the top five salesmen in U.S. history, top five advertise. I mean, the whole ABC mm-hmm. thing was was an advertisement. It was a year long advertisement for the park. Right. And oh, yeah. he and he got somebody else to foot the bill for like for the for the for the free press. Right. And so like oh, yeah. all of that stuff, man, it's just every everything. Everybody else is just is trying to stack up. Like we talked, I, I think one of the, maybe the one of the people that you can compare most to him today is, is Kevin Feige. Um, because he's, he's the brain trust, the head of the brain trust behind the cinematic universe. But because mm-hmm. Disney owns the Marvel cinematic universe as, as a property and they've incorporated it, that IP into the parks and stuff like that. I know mm-hmm. that Kevin Feige has a role in, in all of that stuff, but like right. he's, He's still playing. He's still playing like Michelangelo to to um, Walt Disney's Leonardo, like right. like Da Vinci, not Ninja Turtles. Right, right. I, don't, like, I gotcha. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like they're great in their own right, but like some some people are just head and shoulders above everybody else. Right. So, yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah, he would be the he would be the George Washington on mm-hmm. my Mount Rushmore. Right. Yeah. And probably everybody else's bust would be set just a little bit back, so his was his appeared slightly bigger. Right. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. So that, they we would use force perspective the same way <laughs> right. that the Disney does in the castle to create that that effect. So yeah, yeah. I think that I think we could we could probably talk about this. We could have a whole year long series about people that um could have been on this list, and I think that's why this list is so great because there's no. There's no wrong answer. And you picked people that I didn't think of. And I probably mentioned some people that you didn't think of. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't disagree with you. I think the people you have were great. <laughs> yeah. Same here. Yeah. I mean, they're all great. I mean, they're, they're all, you know, worthy of this. So uh, it's, and, and I think you're right. You know, the list can be a, a really long list of people that made an impact. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's what it was about for us was like looking at people who were brilliant in their, in their, um, skills or, or their, or their art. And then, and then the impact that they had, not just on the, the people that they inspired to also create, but then us as consumers who are completely fascinated with the, the stuff that they've created and also the lives that they've lived because right. like it's, they're, they're just exceptionally interesting people. Right. So. All right. Well, great debate, Sean. We didn't disagree enough, <laughs> but it yeah, was, I mean, it was more just like idea sharing than a debate. So, Hey, but the world would be a better place if we could all come together and just share our ideas and be civilized. Right. <laughs> so, Hey, that's going to wrap up another episode of the caption life. We thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out, tag us in your post. Uh, for more information about us and all of our previous episodes, please visit thecaptionlife.com. Until next time, 
Hey, if you can dream it, you can do it. (laughs) Nice. 